use a little bit heavier anchor nymph um, and maybe just go from your uh, regular fly line. You don't have to buy a, a, a specialized line, even though you probably will later on. Um, and, you know, you just go maybe seven feet of straight uh, fluorocarbon, uh, probably 4X. And you go straight down to a, um, an anchor nymph and maybe have another nymph that's tied off of a, a tag above it. That was Pete Erickson describing short line nymphing. Are you getting tired of your nymphing yet? No, not me either. This is the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show, episode 118. Welcome to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show, where you discover tips, tricks, and tools from the leading names in fly fishing today. We'll help you on your fly fishing journey with classic stories covering steelhead fishing, fly tying, and much more. Hey, how's it going, everyone? Thanks for stopping by the Fly Fishing Show. I wanted to give a quick shout-out to Echo Fly Rods, which has been my go-to fly rod for steelhead for quite some time. Go to wetflyswing.com slash echo, that's E-C-H-O, to purchase the rod I know and trust, plus you'll get a free fly line along with your purchase. The podcast will get a small commission at no extra charge to you if you purchase through that link. This is a great way to support the show and one of the great companies out there. In today's episode, I talk with Pete Erickson, the lead designer for the new Echo Shadow Your Nymphing Rod. Pete was a member of Team USA for a number of years and breaks down some of the tips on casting, choosing a rod, and fishing for grayling. We hear about the Echo story a little on spade rods and what is up next for Pete. Before we get started, let's hear from our sponsors. Since 1977, the Fly Fishing and Tying Journal has long been considered the Angler's Magazine, with original how-tos and technical articles written by the best trout and steelhead anglers in the West. They are committed to sharing exceptionally written essays, fiction, poetry, and in-depth guides to fly tying and fly fishing. FTJ is one of my go-to magazines, and if you haven't checked it out recently, you can get started today by calling 1-800-541-9498 or heading over to the web at ftjangler.com. So, without further ado, here's Pete Erickson from Echo Fly Fishing. How's it going, Pete? Good. How are you doing, Dave? Good. Good. Thanks for coming on the show today. We've got uh, got some questions to dig in here on. Uh, you're obviously a specialist when it comes to uh, the Euro game and rod design and all sorts of good stuff. So we're going to get into some of your background and some topics there. But uh, maybe before we get into all that, you can just give us a little uh, brief intro on how you first got into uh, fly fishing. Uh, yeah, uh, I was born and raised in the Seattle area and had a dad that was uh, a big-time fly fisherman. And, geez, I think I probably was throwing my first flies around six or seven years old, you know, or at least, uh, I'm Kamloops, uh, dragging woolly buggers around. So that's, you know, way back when on that. that was, uh, Oh, go ahead. Sorry. Know, I was just going to say, so, so that was the Kamloops was your, you were born and kind of raised in the Kamloops area. No, in Seattle, but it's kind of a weekend trip. And my oh, dad was, right. uh, he was obsessed with, uh, the, lake fishing in Kamloops. And so that's basically where I learned to fly fish. Also, uh, kind of, uh, Nunley and some of the lakes in, uh, Eastern Washington as well. Um, uh, probably 10, 11, 12 years old, I started, uh, uh, fishing for steelhead and salmon too in oh, the wow. local rivers, the Anadromous rivers. So, uh, pretty, you know, pretty lucky to have parents that were into fly fishing. Um, it's kind of a hilarious thing that I, I'm actually a pretty terrible spin fisherman. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, just because I, I was given a fly rod from a, a young age and everywhere I go that I spend fish, people kind of 
you know, they make fun of me like, oh my, like a bait caster. Right. <laughs> I'm a terrible bait caster. <laughs> <laughs> what, what's the, so 12, I mean, so you were fly fishing, uh, for steelhead at, at 12. Oh yeah. Young age. Yeah. Um, just swinging flies and, and, uh, um, lake fishing, doing all that stuff is, is really fantastic area too, to, to be able to do that. And every now and then our family would, uh, get to do a float plane trip up to Alaska when I was growing up too. So oh, cool. Yeah, I got to fish some of the rivers up there when I was a kid. That's awesome. What did your um, What did your folks do? Uh, my dad owned uh, some steakhouse restaurants huh. in the Seattle area, and uh, my mom was in into real estate, so uh-huh. um, it kind of afforded us some some freedom to travel around a little bit and do some fly fishing. No kidding. So, so what's the steakhouse restaurants? Or that was that uh, is that still? Yeah, that's still going strong, right? That is that kind of a chain or. Uh, well, they were called Maverick Steakhouses and, oh, right, uh, yeah, right. yeah, yeah, it was a, it was a chain of, of steakhouses. Um, there's still some of them in that area and that was kind of our family business growing up. Cool. Cool. So, so you had that going and then, so, so when did you start to, I mean, get into, I mean, eventually you had a little chunk there on the, um, you know, you got into the team USA, you know, we've talked about that on the show a number of times. Um, did you, was that the next thing that, I mean, you fished your whole life and then eventually got, got into that. Was that your first big thing in the fly fishing uh, kind of the, as a way of life? Yeah. You know, uh, as far as, uh, river fishing and spring Creek fishing, um, I actually moved to Jackson hole, um, while I was taking a break in between jobs at Microsoft and uh, remember, I'm from Redmond, Washington, so you kind of have to work for Microsoft oh, at wow. some point in your life. And uh, <laughs> so I actually took a break and went to Jackson Hole to ski for a few months and met some great folks and some skiers. And And uh, they said, you're not thinking about going back, are you, without fishing this area? Because they knew I was a fly fisherman. I kind of <laughs> talked about it. And uh, boy, it's probably maybe a month or two fishing the Snake River and, and Flat Creek in that area. And uh, I was hooked. And, uh, make, make a long story short, I, I quit my job and never went back no and kidding. turned into a fly fishing guide and, <laughs> and a ski bum. So it was, it was a pretty, it was, a you know, the area had a hold on me pretty quick. And, uh, <laughs> um, I, uh, uh, I started, uh, doing some of the nymphing in the, in those areas. And, uh, basically, um, as a fly fishing guide, you know, you do everything. Uh, we focus on dry fly fishing on the snake a lot, but, um, of course, nymphing as well. Yeah. What year was that when you quit uh, Microsoft? Uh, early 90s. Okay. So, yeah, early 90s. And that was also, right, right. So, Jackson Hole, you, so you weren't out steelhead fishing. You were just going all in on trout fishing out there. Yeah. I mean, I made the occasional long drive to the Clearwater and yeah. Idaho and stuff. But, um, no, yeah, it was all heavy. Yep obsessed with uh with stream fishing that's cool and this is the and is this where the gang you you know the i I think of it as kind of like the rat pack you know you got because jeff courier we've had other people on here that have talked about this group out of jackson hole uh, this group of amazing a lot of the people are big names in fly fishing can you talk a little bit about that that crew and is that when it started right there yeah i mean it was it was really cool to to meet some of the people that were there i know uh my boss joe bressler hired me at bressler outfitters uh, which turned into world cast anglers, but just, uh, you know, we saw each other on the river every day or we're roommates, uh, you know, guys like Tom Rowland and Carter Andrews. And like you said, Jeff Courier was a, uh, Jack Dennis's shop guy and, uh, other guides like uh, Oliver White. I don't know if you know him or yeah, uh, yeah, he's Tom been on, Bye. yeah, he's been on the show. Oliver has. Yeah. Tom by, uh, Lorianne Murphy was another one that oh, I met right away. 
yeah, so just is kind of an amazing area um, to uh, hang out with those people and fish with them all the time and 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 uh, guide with them too. So mm-hmm. nice. I love you know it was talk about you know being able to learn from some amazing anglers. No kidding. Yeah, and so and so you had Jack Dennis his shop out there and and so you were working for a different a different shop. Yeah, I was working for the Orvis shop, which was right down the road. Oh, gotcha. Okay. Um, yeah, and then you know, guiding out of that operation, which is a pretty big guiding service. Oh, okay. Most of the people I mentioned, or a lot of the people I mentioned were, uh, working for Joe wrestler. Oh, I see. All so, right. So you got, yeah. so you got that going and then you did, uh, so how long were you doing the Euro thing before you started to make a transition out of that? No, oh, the, so it's kind of a, a weird story, but the, uh, competition scene i never really you know i didn't even participate in the one fly which is a competition in that area um i guided in it but i never participated in it and my outfitter uh he saw an opportunity on espn um and thought it would be good for business um to send a team there and i was one of the lead guides at the time and so uh they sent a couple of us up to montana and uh we did a geez, it was a couple weeks of uh, a fly fishing competition. And so, uh, make another, make a long story short, we ended up winning that competition and got invites to the great outdoor games, hmm. uh, in Lake Placid, New York. And, uh, I somehow, uh, got lucky and won that great outdoor games and was then contacted, contacted by the team USA guys. Oh, okay. And then that was, and, yeah. Yeah. That was kind of the the deal. Team USA was kind of going through this transition where yeah. where they were uh, uh, the, they kind of had a rule with, that you had to win a major competition to be part of Team USA. Oh, is that one? Yeah, because we I can't yeah, remember it was, if it was like Devin, Devin or Lance. One of those guys talked about how yeah, I think it was Devin. He talked about how initially it was just um, you know it was a bunch of people that just went over there and fished, and there wasn't a lot of you know they didn't do very well, and then it and it started transitioning to that sounds like when you got involved. Yeah, there was a big push. I know we had a, I, I was one of the guides in the competition in 97 on the Snake River and we didn't do well. And so I think that the board of the Team USA kind of made a decision to go for some people that have had competition experience. And my competition experience was just, you know, hey, go do this. And, uh, you know, I kind of got lucky in some of these competitions. And, and uh, uh, once I was on Team USA, then I learned to Euro nymph. Like we we traveled to Poland and and uh, you know met the the nymphing guru Vladi and stayed mm. at his house and and uh, had him train us. We called it Vladi boot camp. <laughs> Jeff Curry will tell you all about it. Yeah. But um, and so geez, that was probably uh, late '90s, and that's when I started uh, picking up a lot of the Euro nymphing stuff. It was super early in the game. Oh. Um, we we weren't even using long light rods we were using you know nine foot foot four weights and stuff oh wow and that and that wasn't even that long i mean that's only 10 years ago or yeah 10 or 11 so years no 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 well no late 90s oh, so, oh, oh late 90s yeah not not yeah late 90s yeah, yeah. So it was a little i'm dating ago. i'm dating myself right now i better yeah, be yeah. careful that's right so, so late <laughs> 90s so basically yeah 20 years ago so you get in strong and 20 plus yeah, yeah. 20 plus okay and then uh and then uh, okay, then then you're a nymph. You're you're. And how long did you did you were you on Team USA? Uh, let's see, uh, a decade. I, I was on Team USA for a solid decade before I had uh, some little little kids running around the house and decided to quit traveling. It's a huge travel commitment. Yeah. So, um, uh, yeah, I had ten straight years and went to, oh geez, I don't know, 
uh, five or six, probably six world championships. Okay. So it was kind of fun, kind of cool. But that's where I, uh, you can't really do well in the competition scene if you don't have that side of things, the Euro nymphing side. So you, you pretty much have to pick it up, uh, you know, learn it or, or perish on that competition scene. Yeah. Um, so that's that's when I got into your own thing. Okay. All right. And then, so then in in the, the late, uh, well, I guess oh uh, nine in that range, you start getting out of it. And what what was your next? I mean, when did the when did the echo? Was that the next big thing when you started? designing uh euro kind of nipping rods or you know for for echo or how'd that all come to me um i was doing a, a casting competition down in uh um san francisco and uh at golden gate and i was down there with my buddy brett bishop and who's also who's captain of team usa uh he wasn't involved with team usa at the time but uh we were doing a, a unrelated competition down there and and i had met tim ray jeff before and uh uh we had lunch with with uh tim and his brother and and uh we we started talking about you know our fishing experiences and stuff and he he was like ah oh, you know i'd be really curious to to design a a nymphing rod for my company could you you know could you do that for me could you help me do that and so we started talking about it and working together on it and and yeah that was geez that was over 10 years ago that hmm. we put the first first rods out wow Awesome. There you go. So, so now you're on nymphing. So, and that, it kind of coincides. I've, we've talked to not only Devin, but others have talked about Euro, um, on this. So that was 10 years ago. And now it seems like everybody's got a Euro nymphing, Euro nymphing rod. Is that, is that the case? Or do you, I mean, what's the, yeah, I mean, do you see a lot of companies with, with that going on? Or do you think it, it's kind of blown up here in the last few years? Uh, that's a, yeah, it, it seems like um, I'm, I still guide a lot. I probably guide 50 plus days a year oh, cool. in the summers. Um, I'm a school teacher during the winter, so uh-huh. uh, my guiding is, is mostly in the summers. Yeah, I, I'll literally get uh, a call saying, you know, I don't want to do traditional fishing today. Uh, let's park the drift boat on the gravel bars, and I want you to teach me how to Euro nymph. There you go. I mean, it's just, it could be just a, a random uh angler from anywhere in the country that's yep. just seen it and is curious about it and um so then you know of course i'm like well you know we need to have the right gear and um you can do it with a you know a traditional nine foot five weight rod but you realize the benefits uh, when you have a long light rod like a 10 foot 10 and a half or even 11 foot uh you know three weight yeah that's right and, which, and the, the which sounds tip. crazy but. right and, and the real yeah the real soft tip and do you want to maybe talk a little bit about the rod that you that process of designing the rod. i mean you know how do you what you know maybe talk about what your role was in that process of creating that uh, that euro nipping rod well um when i first traveled to poland and and europe i mean like like we said that was a long time ago uh even the euros were using you know maybe a a 10 foot five weight lake rod mm-hmm. you know from sage or whatever and you know had a fighting butt on it and um, there weren't really Euro nymph rods out way back then. Um, and so the rods were a little heavy and, and, uh, um, the obvious thing was that the length was a huge benefit. Um, but everyone was just kind of dealing with, with all the other actions, you know, basically if you have a lake rod action, um, that might not be optimum for, uh, you know, Euro nymphing with, with tungsten bead heads and stuff like that. Yeah. So, and why is that, um, why is that, that the lake rod isn't? you know what's the difference between the, that lake rod and the, the perfect euro rod uh 
basically a, a lake rod's going to have an action that that uh, it might be a more powerful rod. Um, it might uh, not load certain types of leaders. Um, you, probably the biggest thing with a lake rod is that it's going to be sized up power wise. So you know most most of the lake rods that I compete with are six weights, seven weights. I All even right. compete with, with eight weights. Oh, wow. So that'd be that'd be the first big deal is that we had to start trying to trying to figure out um, how to make the rods lighter because they're hard to hold oh, in your hand wow. if you have a big heavy rod. Yeah. You know, you can't take a, a 10 foot seven weight steelhead rod, um, yeah. and hold your arm up all day like oh, that. Right. So, and you, and you have to hold your, I mean, for the most part, you're holding your rod up as much as you can, as high as you can. Uh, yeah. I mean, for, if you're competing and you're trying to get that, that reach and everything, uh, you would do that, um, out, you know, kind of casually yeah. fishing. I don't always hold it up there, gotcha. you know, just trying to relax and the sure. rods are long enough now. Um, but so the action back to the to the actions is the you want the rod sensitive so they're they're lightweight you also want the rod to uh, potentially load a uh, a long leader mm-hmm. okay um, so it's gonna it's gonna have to have some finesse to it um, there are a whole bunch of things that we yeah. went through on the first st- uh, shadow series which is the first rod um, that I designed she's probably ten years ago oh. now it was called the shadow PE. And, uh, you know, with my initials on it, which is kind of embarrassing. Oh, yeah, right. <laughs> Tim's like, oh, let's put your initials on there it. That's what go. we do here. And uh, so um, when we put that first rod out, we did we did some experimental things. We made it a little faster than some of the rods uh, that were being used in Europe, uh, just, just for accuracy and speed. Um, and uh, the rod was actually pretty successful. It was, it was a cool thing to, to put it out there. Um, but the next rod we did was called the shadow two. And that was probably, Oh, about six years ago now, somewhere in there. And that rod, uh, was really well received. And, and in fact, it's, it's probably selling better now than it was when it was released. If you can believe that, Mm. which kind of, kind of shows you that this thing is kind of a monster that's, that, that everyone's interested in. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I, it, it was, uh, it was a shock to me because I thought it was just kind of, you know, in that realm of stuff that I learned in Poland or Czech Republic from, from some of those people. But, uh, when you, you know, when you bring it out to our Western rivers or basically any rivers in, in the United States and, and, uh, you have a successful day doing it, it kind of, it turns people on to the, to the whole thing. Yeah. And there's several, re- several reasons why it's, it's, you know, you're in contact with the fish and, um, it, it's really different from, uh, um, fishing with an indicator. It really is. There's, they're, they're two different creatures. Yep. Yep. No, I, it's, uh, and it's funny because I grew up fishing, uh, nymph fishing and I never ever said Euro nymphing, but you know, we used to basically use a, you know, typical nine foot five weight, uh, no, no, uh, no indicators ever, a little split shot and, you know, a normal kind of a leader, usually a nine foot leader, something like that. And Taper, tapered leader. Yeah. And a tapered leader. Yep. So, you know, those are the, some things, but other than that, so, I mean, I guess it was kind of similar because I always, you know, had a tight, you know, for the most part, tried to have a tight line on it and tried to, you know, is, do you feel that, I mean, what else is the Euro? I know it's obviously super effective. How else is it different? I mean, what are the big things that make Euro nipping what it is? Well, like I said, the the gear has really changed things uh, with the Euro uh, nymph uh, lines, and and these rods are incredibly sensitive now. All oh, right, um, you know, yeah. there's a, there's many many things there. The flies are incredible. You got, you know, I didn't see anybody using uh, 
you, you know, jig hooks with tungsten right. slotted beads and stuff. I was using that on the Snake River guiding <laughs> 12 years ago, 15 years okay. ago. It was just, it just killed the fish. Um, but uh, so the so the gear is different. Um, I would say that most, like when you're talking about high sticking, you know, that's what, mm-hmm. that's what most people are referring to yeah. stuff that, you know, oh, I'll hear that. Um, yeah. if I'm doing a presentation, like, oh, my sticking. great granddad's been high sticking for 200 years yep. in Colorado. Yep. And, uh, and you're like, yeah, absolutely. There's, you know, there's probably no original fishing techniques. They're all kind of, you know, blended together. Um, but usually when I see someone that's just kind of traditional high sticking, uh, they're not always uh, in full contact with the flies, and uh, um, that would be one difference that that I've noticed. And uh, once again, going back to the to the fact that it's a jig hook, and um, and you can you know yeah, that's a uh, huge kind part. of yeah, kind of make it go off the bottom uh, as far as uh, not getting hung up. That's right. Um, but there's there's a lot of similarities to a lot of the old styles. So yeah, yeah. Um, yeah I mean, and and to try to to try to say that one's really heavily unique over another is, is kind of tough to do, gotcha. but I would say, I'd say the gear and, uh, and probably the fact that, uh, the leaders are incredibly light too. I yeah. mean, what, what type of leader were you using? Yeah. Same thing. I mean, I just, uh, I, I used to build my own leaders and, you know, we'd use whatever Cortland or some typical, you know, leader, but yeah, sometimes you just put a, you know, put a pre, you know, custom seven and a half foot or nine foot leader on there and just go with that. You know, down to yeah, 5X, usually 5X yeah I was going to say 5X. Yeah, that was one of the big things that I noticed, too, in Poland. It's like, wow, we're going to so we're going to be using 6X or, or even 7X or with 7X. these nymphs. Yeah, and it's, you know, so that it has less drag 7X on it. 7X with uh, a, a normal size. Like how small or how big would the nymphs be with 7X? Uh, you, you'd be surprised. You can get away with, with uh, fairly big nymphs with 6 and 7X, especially with uh, how improved all the yeah. – uh, Tip of material. And, and how do you days. avoid, you know, from the, the dumb person, you'll look at this who hasn't really done the, the Euro thing. You know, how do you avoid that thing where you make that cast and, you know, the, the rod when you got too much weight and your leader's too weak and it just makes this like almost like a, what do you call it, where you're almost like slinging, you know, that thing when it's really, but how, how do those, is it just, that's what you're saying, the action of the rod takes that all out and, and it allows you to basically cast a leader with a heavy weighted fly? Well, yeah, you can't. I mean, it's true. The rod, it, the longer rods uh, load up better for those situations. And um, and there are two kind of situations in, in your own nymphing. One is where you're actually shooting. I call it, I call it shooting, uh, where you're shooting the, the bead head. Yeah. You know, so that's why people will say, hey, you need, you know, 3.5 mm-hmm. uh, 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 bead and, and you're going to shoot it. There's other ones where you actually have a, a semi-tapered leader down uh, where there's a top part of the leader that's that's pretty stiff like maxima yeah um and and then it's easier to load at that point oh, and then right. the weight becomes a little less significant at that That's point so right. you can actually you, you're kind of actually throwing a loop with that leader because the leader's built that way yep yep gotcha okay and then and you know the rod so how you guys made the rods a little faster can you talk a little about that process how, how that you know your part and how that works you know we've talked a little about rods you know in past episodes but just how you take a rod where it's at and make it a little faster how, do, how does that come to be yeah, well, so uh, you got to have an idea of, of kind of what you want, obviously, to start with. And then, uh, um, you know, we work as a team at Echo. Um, we'll actually take some rods and go out and test them uh, from, you know, maybe our past rods or other industry rods and, and try to figure out what type of uh, new action that, that, we'll, that people are after. Um, you, we use deflection boards to, 
to see what the actions of the rods are. Um, and then we create prototypes and then you just, you literally have to go, you know, fish your butt off Mm -hmm. with the prototypes and, and, uh, take copious notes on everything. Um, and then keep, uh, working prototypes until you finally dial into exactly what you want. And that's, yeah. Oh, go for it. I was just going to say how many hours uh, on average would just guesstimate. Would you say you put into uh, one of those rods that you're, you're testing out before, you know, you know, before you go back with your notes to the, you know, back to the lab. (laughs) Oh, that's a good question. Um, and then the poor souls that I bring out with me too, friends of mine, you know, oh, that, right, that yeah. are your own efforts. Yeah, exactly. Like, can we, yeah, can how we go much, in yet? Yeah, are we talking? Are we talking hundreds of hours? Or are we yeah, talking hundreds of hours. Hundreds and hundreds yeah. of hours. Yeah, yeah. You'll you'll notice a, a kind of a funny thing. Uh, I think Tim's got it somewhere in the marketing literature on the Shadow X, which is our latest rod that just came out. Um, it says something like, "By far, without a doubt." unbelievably the most developed rod we've right. ever put out, which means that we tried all these prototypes and, uh, you know, ultimately I'm the lead designer. And so I, it, it's my call. And, uh, you know, I was like, uh, no, we got to kind of get it to, you know, have a little more action here, a little stiffer tip, little, you know, that type of thing. And so we did tons of prototypes and before we finally got exactly what we wanted. Um, so the process is, it can be tedious. And, but at the same time, I, really enjoy the process of designing a rod. Yeah, cool. Cool. I, I wanted to get into a few, I mean, you're, it sounds like you're a decent caster. You maybe have a few tips you could shed on as related to Euro nymphing and kind of that game that we could talk about. I want to dig a little more of that. Uh, you noted when you said, sure. um, uh, Tim, uh, Ray Jeff, um, Mm-hmm. You know, he hasn't been on the show here, but his name pops up so much, you know, whether it's winning casting competitions or how Echo seems to be, you know, doing really well. But he seems to be, you know, may, I don't know. I don't know if he's out in the forefront or whatever, but um, can you talk about, you know, what you've learned from Tim over the years? It seems like he's quite a, a powerful <laughs> figure, so to speak. Oh, he really is. Uh, you know, he and his brother, Steve, Ray Jeff, uh, have, you know, these world-class casters have done all these casting competitions uh, since they were little kids, basically, oh, yeah. growing up in the Bay Area. Gotcha. Um, and so, you know, unbelievable casting instructors and, and casters as far as uh, uh, just every type of casting that I've ever yeah. seen them do. Um, and uh, amazing fishermen, too. Going out fishing with Tim is, is, is you, you learn something every time that you go fish with him. But I would have to say the what I've learned most from Tim is probably his tech that how technical he is hmm. you know he's he's got he's an engineer basically a oh. material engineer and so um when well, it comes to he, design, he's a material engineer he's a like actually an engineer well actually that's a good question i think he i think he i'm, I'm not exactly sure if right. he's an actual material yeah, engineer school, but he right, right. yeah uh i'll have to ask him about yeah. that um but i think he he has a background in it in yeah. materials i know he was a um he's been a rod designer forever yeah with uh with steve so um when he first started talking to me about rod design i uh he had to talk to me about all the materials and and uh uh basically just the whole process it was pretty pretty technical um but i ate it up it was great i loved it (laughs) um and so you know he'll also uh just you'll be out fishing with him and he'll look over and he'll give you a casting tip that's an incredible casting tip. Like he'll, he'll see something in in your casting and go, Hey, you know, you might want to do this or do that. Um, and you, you know, you sit down and think about it. What's a good example just for somebody sitting at home for a, a casting tip, you know, what, what is a, you know, it seems like 
for example, a, a tailing loop, right? You have these things that people do and things. I mean, are there any are there any general casting tips that you know that are out there that you just hear a lot of that you know? I, I mean, you're not really necessarily a teacher, but you've been a guide, so that you've probably taught lots of people how to do it, right? Oh yeah, yeah. I was a casting instructor for a long time myself. Oh, nice. Okay, uh, not on not on Tim's level, but yeah. Um, uh, yeah I remember one time uh, I was at his house and he was helping me with uh, casting, and we were working on some stuff. Um, I think I was getting ready to go to the second grade outdoor games, and uh, I was. I think we had a distance part of our casting deal, and and I was like, hey, how do I get a little more distance? And and basically, he just said, you you have to uh, uh, follow through with your uh, double haul. It's as simple as that. You're not, you know, yeah. you're not following through with your double haul. And I didn't even realize it. Yeah. You know, he's like, you know, finish through with that, with that, uh, that pull hand at, at when you're casting. And, uh, I did it and it's like, oh, like, it's, pull, it's, like it's instantly, down. yeah. Yeah. And stretch that hand out. And I was like, Oh, like this. And I look and it's another five or 10 feet. Kind of like the, right. kind of like the, uh, echo logo, right? <laughs> Exactly. That's exactly right. And I remember looking at the logo later on and going, "Oh yeah, okay, that's, that's cool." Or or the uh, or the Joan Wolf sort of thing. I heard that that uh, that image, you know, that picture of her doing the shooting the line out there back in the day. That's cool. Okay. Exactly. So yeah. So yeah. gosh. So basically, yeah, you have this guy that you were, you know, you kind of studied under and. You know, he taught you a bunch, and you're a casting instructor as well. And can you go into a few if we if we stick on the that euro? You think of that raw, and and what is the best raw? If you think, you know, is it is it ten and a half, eleven? 11 I mean, what is the perfect Ooh, raw? If you had to pick great one, great question, great question. Um, I would say personally, I kind of like the ten and a half three weight um, in a lot of the rods, but um, I know a lot of the competitors like the eleven foot rod too. Okay, um, usually, it's usually in a three weight, or and it could no be in eleven. A there's no eleven and a half foot. No, not yet. Not in the industry. Yeah. Um, one of the things with, with the design process is you're kind of restricted by um, the just the physics of the material. Um, and so when we first start, started doing the 10s or 10 and a halfs or even 11 foot rods, you know, they're kind of tip heavy and and uh, uh, noodly and, and it was a really tough thing to, to get a rod that felt light in hand and crisp. Yeah. Um, and then just basically with the resin technology and everything else, it's been, uh, we've been able to get that in the last like five years. Hmm. So, um, so you actually, you know, you don't really lose anything by going up to 10 and a half or 11 foot now mm-hmm. um, on, on a lot of these rods, especially the shadow X. It's really, really light in hand. Um, and uh, uh, yeah, I'd, I'd I think all around ten and a half three for me, just because uh, you know yep. it's it seems a little more accurate than uh, an eleven footer, but at the same time, you know you lose that extra reach, and and reach is really really important w- with European nymphing. Mm-hmm. You know that extra, even an extra six inches can can be the difference in uh, in your presentation. Yep. Okay. So basically, ten ten foot uh, or ten and a half foot three weight is the good, and then. And then you have your stuff and the line, I guess, is that you kind of get your a line that coincides with that. I mean, once you get on the water, do you have a few tips you might give somebody if they're new? You know, say they didn't pick up a guide trip with you, but they just have their rod and they're out there. Is it just like you grab your nine foot five weight, same sort of thing, same sort of casting? Are there any other special tips? Uh, yeah, I mean, the, as far as basics go, anybody can really have fun kind of going out and, and trying that stuff. Um, you could, you could take a nine foot five out there. Um, what I would recommend is you kind of do what we call short line nymphing. 
And uh, that would be where you uh, use a little bit heavier anchor nymph um, and maybe just go from your uh, regular fly line. You don't have to buy a, a, a specialized line, even though you probably will later on. Um, and, you know, you just go maybe seven feet of straight uh, fluorocarbon, uh, probably 4X, and you go straight down to a um, – an anchor nymph and maybe have another nymph that's tied off of a, a tag above it and just get out there and actually start kind of practicing uh, your lob cast. We call them lob cast because like you said before or earlier, I think yeah. you are literally, you are literally loading that, uh, that fly. That's what I was trying to okay? think. Yeah. Lob is a way of the to line. Yeah. You're lobbing. Yeah. It. It's a lob cast. Yeah. And it's really easy um, to start. And of course you got to use your legs and move around yeah. a little bit. Um, that's one of the things that, uh, the short line nymphing is, is big for grayling and pollen. And so, um, because the, you can kind of move in on the grayling and they, uh, will come, they'll settle back in around you. And so, uh, short line nymphing, um, is, is one of the games over there, but it works pretty well for trout too, especially in certain conditions where trout, um, are, are near you, you know, and, and, uh, you figure your rods, even if you have a nine foot five, your rods nine feet away. So you can do lob cast and get down there to where the fish are. That's a really awesome basic way to do it. And the success is, is usually instant. You're like, wow, hmm. I didn't, I had no idea these fish were this close to me. Right. That's cool. So yeah, go out there and do short line nymphing with a lob cast is, is a great way to start. Okay. And the lot, and that's just, like we said, you got so much weight on there. You can't really, you're not casting, you know, 30, 40 feet of line sort of thing. You're, you're fishing. It makes more sense to start in right in close and work your way out. Absolutely. And then uh, thicker tippets too because they get tangled less. That okay. that kind of spooks people off if they're starting with five or six X and, oh, and right. they, they've got tangles. They're, they're like, oh, I don't like this style of fishing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, if, you, if you go down to, you know, three or four X, then you're going to tangle a lot less in the beginning stages of it. Okay. So, yeah. Okay, cool. Cool. And, uh, and on the rods, sticking with the rods, I know, uh, Echo, we've talked about this with a few guests on here about how durable the, the rods are. Can you talk a little about, you know, Echo and what, what makes them such a, a durable rod? And is that something you guys still have with the, the, your, the, the, um, shadow series? Yeah. Well, uh, one of Tim's, you know, the foundations of, of the company was, um, durability and break, break strength is basically what we talk about when we're designing the rods. Um, in fact, I was just, uh, at the factory, um, a couple of months ago and, uh, we had, uh, all the reps there. It was really, it was really kind of fun. And Tim goes, Hey Pete, go over and grab this rod, um, and see if you can hold it while this, uh, while this winch cranks it down, um, <laughs> and to break it. Yeah. And, you know, I had a, I had a big mask on and stuff Right. and, uh, it, the rod was so far bent over, um, that it actually was coming down, uh, a foot or two below the real seat that I was holding. Jeez. And then my and then my arm started shaking. Like it was actually I couldn't hold it longer than that. And so we eventually put the rod into clamps and then yep. kept pulling it down until it finally shattered. And wow. then you can learn a lot you can learn a lot from where all the uh where all the brakes are. Like you like it's a real real technical deal. But uh that's been a focus of Echo uh, from the beginning. Super durable. Yep. And you just uh you build the brake strength into it is what you do. And how do you build that? Like, how would you build, how would the, that rod be stronger than say a rod that isn't, you know, what, what's the difference? Is it just the type of material you're using? Or? Uh, yeah. I mean, it's, it's the, it's basically, uh, the thickness of the, of the graphite, the walls, um, 
your tapers, all everything kind of plays into it. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. But you, uh, every rod designer has to decide what brake strength they're going to do. And so, you know, if you if you go with too strong of a brake brake strength, then it affects other areas of performance, right? Yeah, like the weight and all that type of stuff. So you can, it has to be a balance. Uh, you were saying with the shadows, but anytime that you do long light rods, like uh, the, like the new Shadow X, it's not going to be um, as durable as a you know as a nine foot seven weight steelhead rod. Yeah, you see, see what I'm saying right. is you because it's uh, what I call I call them long light rods. Um, so you're pushing kind of the design uh, limitations. And gotcha. so you might have a rod that, uh, let's say that you, you know, you really, uh, you decide that you're going to reef on, on a, a snag, like a log, uh, you could possibly break a long light rod doing that. Whereas maybe, um, someone who's doing it with a nine foot five rod, it might not break in the same situation. So, yeah. so it's all, it's all kind of a balancing act. And now a quick word from our sponsor. The Fly Fishing and Tying Journal, your seasonal magazine covering fly tying, fishing destinations, how-tos, short stories, and more. Here are a few examples of what gets me fired up in this year's winter edition. Check out a a short story by Deck Hogan on big flies for the OP. Get the inside scoop uh, uh, from Dave McNeese and his technique on dyeing fly tying materials. We also head over to the North Umpqua, then back to the Green River, and over to... Gary Lewis on the Green Butt Skunk has a little story on the history there. Pretty uh, pretty cool stuff. Lots of additional content in every episode of the journal. So head over to FTJ Angler and subscribe so you don't miss any of the tips, tricks, and stories in the next issue. That's FTJAngler.com to get started today. And if you uh, mentioned you heard uh, heard about this on the from the Wet Fly Swing podcast, we'll figure out a way to give you some little bonus. That would be amazing. And I will follow up with you on that. Or you can reply to me at Dave at wetflyswing.com and let me know you subscribed. Okay, back to the show. Yeah, I wanted to touch a little bit on the, a little more on the Echo story, if you know it, just how, uh, how it started. I think it's been, I'm not sure the exact, uh, how many years it's been going, but, um, but yeah, before we get there, do you, um, you know, would you be cool jumping into a little bit of a grayling kind of, you know, that's something we haven't talked on here yet about you know, grayling fishing and maybe how it's different from just fishing for rainbows or, or brown trout. Is that something we could dig into a little bit? Sure. Sure. I can, um, I can talk about my experiences, uh, on, you know, competing in Europe and, and that's, that's where I learned about grayling. Yeah. Um, and is that always a species? Is it usually grayling or one of the species you're going for? Or does it matter whether you're catching grayling or, you know, what, or what are the main species if you had to say the top few that you guys are going for? It's just trout and grayling usually. So, you know, in so rainbows or, uh, or, you know, a lot of times it's wild browns over yeah, there. Browns, um, there are yeah. rainbows in Europe too. Yep. Uh, but like my favorite competitions are wild browns yeah. and wild, wild grayling. Gotcha. So those are um, two, and they're so, usually, yeah, yeah, they're mixed together usually oh, okay. in, a, in, so, a, in a beat when gotcha. you're doing a, a, a section. And similar to like browns and where you have browns and rainbows, you know, browns are definitely taking differently. They're feeding differently. I mean, graylings, are they more similar to a rainbow or more or, or a brown? Uh, it's probably neither. They're, they're kind of their own special beast. Like you can, uh, you can actually kind of tell whether a person had uh, trout on their section by their score or whether they had grayling on their section. Okay. So when someone's, yeah, when someone's coming up, uh, after uh, the scores are done and, you know, we're, we're competitive anglers. So we're like, Hey, how, how'd you do? How many did you catch? They're like, yeah. Oh, I caught, 
I cut 14. Um, well, you're like, oh, he had trout on his section, you know, yeah. um, as, as opposed to maybe I caught two grayling on oh, my no section kidding. that were, yeah, or it can, it can be the other way around too if grayling okay. are eating on top. Um, so they're, they're different creatures. I mean, the Europeans that, that I've fished with and have helped train me in those situations, you know, I've got to fish with them and they've been guides for Team USA. Uh, they call them El Professor. <laughs> you know, they're, <laughs> they're, they're incredibly smart they are. fish. Yeah, cool. uh, the Euro- European grayling are especially uh, wily fish. Uh, have you fished um, for grayling up in Alaska or anywhere up north? Yeah, that, that's kind of a funny story. Uh, I've spent a lot of time on the Nushagak and, oh, yeah. and uh, you know, some of the rivers up there. And, and uh, I've got pictures of giant grayling with uh, a mouse, a skated mouse stuffed Damn. in their mouth. That's sweet. And, and uh, you know, I'd send them to my, to my friends in Europe that, We'll spend an entire weekend trying to catch an eight-inch uh, European grayling that yeah. is impossible to catch, and I'm like, oh yeah, we could just well, I guess that's skate Alaska. ice on top. Yeah, <laughs> for, that is Alaska. So. It's, it's almost like any species, right? Even the rainbows. It's kind of they're all. It's Alaska's a little bit of the anomaly. Yeah, Arctic grayling, or yeah, they tend to be kind of dumb in the Alaska grayling. So Europeans a little differently. And and what are are there a couple of flies that you you know? I mean, I guess you guys are using the same sort of stuff, kind of Euro styles. But are there a couple of your go to flies you 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 throw on there for grayling? Yeah, I mean, most of the the Pertigon flies. Um, oh, yeah. I, I'm sure Lance and yeah. Devin talked about yeah, that. Have. Those those things are are staples a lot of times for grayling, as well as the wild browns, like in Spain. Um, uh, there's a lot of crossover with that, but a lot of times grayling will, will, uh, they're, they're big into hot spots. Um, you know, I remember, uh, bringing out some hotspot flies, you know, 15 years ago with fishing clients are like, what are, what are these weird things? You know, you could, you didn't even see hotspots in the fly shops and stuff. And, and, uh, they were such a trigger, uh, red tags and stuff like that. They were such a trigger for grayling that um you just once i got used to fishing them in europe i had to fish them over on the snake river and and uh, our rivers you know the green river and stuff over in the rockies um so those those flies would be big for grayling grayling really examine the flies closely um uh grayling love to eat dry flies as well uh that's where i really got into cdc um cdc is a is a huge uh, advantage for grayling um, and of course, uh, you know, I let the CDC transferred over to our waters beautifully. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but yeah, they're the grayling flies are kind of unique in that way. You yeah. know, they have hot spots on them and they're, uh, they're usually low profile and, um, uh, small works. Oh, oh, one, one, uh, great tip that, that I got from a guide over there in, uh, Slovakia was, I was fishing for grayling and, uh, he was out fishing me and I was, you know, I was kind of frustrated. I was watching what he was doing and trying to figure out what, what was going on. And, um, and, uh, he, he grabbed my flies and he's like, Oh, your, your hooks are uh, silver. Huh. I was like, yeah, that's, that's all I have in my fly box. He's like, no, you need black hooks. Oh yeah. I was like, I was like, what? He's like, yeah, the grayling, the grayling are They want, they want to eat black hooks. At least on that river, you no know, kidding. and I found that I found that to be true. Yeah. yeah, so I just brought a sharpie with me and colored all my hooks. There you go. There you <laughs> I go. Literally, could, I literally could tell the difference with gray. Like, so that's that's in a in like they are that smart um, as far as presentation goes. Gotcha. Okay. Cool. So, and it sounds like you, you know, your, your background is, you know, obviously the, the Euro game. Do you have any other people out there that, you know, influenced, uh, kind of you along the way that were big influence, like, like Tim and others that are out there? 
Uh, yeah, I would say the the Polish world champion Vladi, and he, uh, yeah, he was kind enough to take, um, you know, guys like Jeff Courier and myself and um, a lot of the Team USA guys, uh, and uh, uh, just train us, you know, take us to the Son River in Poland and and uh, and say, here you go, you know, here's here's how we do this here. Um, and so huge influence as far as learning a lot of the, the, uh, European nymphing stuff. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, um, yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, one guy that really, uh, uh, kind of took me under, under his wing was, uh, Jeff Courier cause he'd been yeah. on team USA a few years before I got there. And, uh, I think he was my roommate in Spain and stuff oh, yeah. and kind of, you know, kind of yeah. showed me the ropes. That's right. Uh, that was, that was a huge, uh, he- uh, awesome thing. I think he was the first one in Team USA for the U.S. to actually win a medal, right? <laughs> he was. That was that was in Spain. Yeah. Okay. And that that was that was kind of one of our first uh, um, really good teams where we I think we had a top five finish maybe, um, and uh, you know maybe the the year or two before that the team was finishing you know in the twenties. Yeah. So wow. it was a big big difference with the um, uh, kind of a different group of anglers. So yeah, he was a, he was a huge influence in that. Yep. Okay. Um, so yeah, let's take us back. So so basically, let's think of the Euro game. We'll stick with the rod. Um, we're going for great. Let's just say we're out there in Europe. Um, you know, going for grayling. Do you have a couple of tips you might provide if you're on the river and maybe fishing? You're not doing that well. You're not catching any of those fish. How you might you know get into a couple of fish? Yeah, grayling are really interesting. Um, they're what they do is they pod up. So you'll, you'll find a pot of grayling. Uh, that's the first thing is you, you search until you find them hmm. and then, and slow down. What's a pod look like? I mean, because you're, you're just polarized. Well, it's kind of, it's like, I always call them herds. <laughs> hmm. I know that's not the, the proper sure. way to say it, but yeah, I call it a herd of grayling. This, yeah. Um, you, yeah, you can even, uh, uh, there was one time in Slovakia where I, um, I, I knew that the angler, the Italian angler before me had, uh, had only caught one or two fish on this section. And I was like, Oh boy, I'm up against it here. Um, and I kind of figured out where he probably went. Um, and I could tell just cause there's evidence of, of stuff left behind yep. and, and, uh, footprints and everything. I could mm-hmm. tell where he went. And I, uh, I settled in on this pool, um, that was down at the bottom and it was by a busy bridge and everything. And I, I, I figured, well, uh, maybe there's some grayling down in there. Um, and I actually started uh, nailing the grayling on a uh, dry fly. Like they would come up and eat it. They weren't rising, but they would come up and eat it. And I ended up just, you know, catching, I don't know, 35 grayling in, hmm. in three hours. Um, and they were all there. They were all sitting in that one spot. Yep. Wow. Um, and after I kind of burned the hole out, I actually went uh, down a little bit lower and, and I, uh, I walked a lot of the grayling back up into the hole. Like I, I could see them kind of zipping around and they, they settled back into the hole and I actually wow. caught a few more in my, in my last 20 minutes. So that's kind of a weird little anecdote about, about grayling, how they are. Um, they'll settle back into their spot and you can kind of move in on them and, and try to catch them again. Huh. Uh, that, that said, I mean, I've moved into a lot of spots where I knew grayling were and just got my butt kicked. Yeah. In Europe a lot of times. Is that different just from open. is that different from trout? I mean, when you spook trout, do you think they kind of just what what do they do? Yeah, the 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 trout sections especially like the wild trout sections in Europe, yeah, it, it, and Spain is one of the most difficult places I've ever fished. Um 
they will uh you'll blow them up and and they'll be gone just gone. like you you don't have a chance yeah know. Yeah, they're not going to settle back into their spots like a grayling would. So, so you know, two different kind of approaches there. Yeah. Um, that said, um, grayling, you really have to to make several casts on them and do everything perfect. Uh, with a wild trout, if you approach them correctly and uh, on a European river, uh, let's say it's a wild brown trout. I mean, they come running. They just they nail it. You got them. Mm-hmm. So like you, in a, in a way, you're like okay, trout are easier than grayling. Because, you know, as long as you don't, you know, blow them up and spook them by, by storming in on them or whatever, uh, the trout, um, they just seem like they're more aggressive than grayling. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of a, that's kind of a, okay. a different thing. Like you'll actually go through a section that you're assigned and you'll fish for the trout, you know, first, and then you'll come back through the section and look for the grayling spots, like the holding water for grayling. All right. There you go. Cause they're going to stick around. How do you, you mentioned perfect cast. I mean, back to that casting, is there any, any tips, you know, again, so you're, so you've got that rod or you, now you've got a little pot of grayling out there. If you're not doing the plop, like you said, the lob right in close, if you're having to cast a little further out, is there any tips to getting that heavy fly with a long leader to be in, you know, is, are you trying to get it within a foot or, or two sort of thing? Well, the, most of the, uh, the nymphing that is done now is kind of hybridized. It's not like short line or super long line. Um, you're kind of going at a mid range and the, the leader material is really thin, you know, like I said, five X, six X. Um, and these rods are, they're long enough now and they have, um, they have a crisp enough action to where you can go down pretty far on your bead sizes and still, uh, load that bead and shoot it out there. Oh, cool. And then, and then, uh, so, uh, it, the thing is, is if you use giant beads, it's really good to start with because it keeps tangles out and it gets your flies down to where the fish are. But at the higher levels of catching fish with European nymphing, um, the smaller beads that you do, the better oftentimes. So you want your rod to be able to, to be sensitive enough to, to basically shoot those smaller beads. So that would, that would be the biggest casting tip I can tell you. And of course your accuracy then gets all off, right? With the, with the smaller beads, you know, it's, it's tough to, to shoot that without it go, uh, you know, kind of flinging off to the right or flinging off to the left. So the biggest thing I, I would tell people is, is, uh, start downsizing your beads and really spend a lot of time on the water trying to make your cast accurate Mm -hmm. because, uh, because that's the name of the game, you know, how yeah. many, how many accurate casts can you have? Right. Um, right. And is that when you're in a spot, I mean, how many casts are you, once you hit that perfect spot, is that pretty much at one cast to kind of fish it through and then work your way down? I mean, are you trying to systematically breaking that thing within like foot six inch little sections? Yeah. I mean, you're going to do a lot of fly changing, um, in those situations. Uh, A lot of times you know where the fish are. Once again, if we're talking great, if we're talking grayling, then I'm going to change flies a lot. I'm going to rest that spot. I'm going to keep, I'm going to keep trying that spot. Um, if you're talking wild trout and you know, you're coming in, uh, to a spot that the fish is probably going to eat on the first, uh, go through. Um, or, um, it, it really does depend on, um, I think I heard Lance talking about this on, on, the other podcast mm-hmm. that you did with them. Yeah. Uh, if you've had someone come in and absolutely uh, just, you know, kill the fit, do a great job catching fish. Yeah. Those, those fish have been caught. 
or most of them are spooked. So uh, it wouldn't just be the first cast in that situation. You'd, you'd have to settle in. So there's so many variables uh, gotcha. with a lot of this stuff that you that you're processing all the time. Um, but you know, the more accurate you are, the better because it's not wasted casts. And uh, also, strike detection is another really huge thing, and that's what uh, that's what the newer, uh, more modern rods allow you to do. Yeah. You can detect you can detect strikes yep. either visually or by feel or a combination of and both is, is what is, is that, what I do. Okay, and is that where the with the smaller bead that's going to be help with your strike detection a little bit versus the the bigger stuff? Is that a helpful? Uh, yeah, that's a good question. The strike detection with a smaller bead sometimes uh, it's hard to detect the strikes. Okay, but uh, but the smaller flies oftentimes get the fish to eat better. So just because they're um, smaller. More, yeah, more, like yeah. the you know, it's not such a giant obnoxious fly coming through there. Yeah, um, and what's small? And, what, what's a small? Like you know, you think about nymphs and the typical, or sixteen. You know, and smallers are pretty good. You know, it's a good. Are you guys using bigger stuff? Uh, yeah, like so. A lot of times you have two nymphs, right? You've got an anchor nymph and you've got a natural nymph. Um, uh, a lot of the the smaller natural nymph um, can be eighteen. Sure. Yeah. You know. Um, and, uh, a lot of times we'll oversize, oversize the beads though. So you got a small fly with an oversized right. bead. Um, and that really does a couple of different things. It, it, it keeps the fly small. So for presentation, uh, but it gives you some of that weight for shooting the fly, you know, to look, to load that rod. Yeah. So you get both, you kind of get uh, both there. Um, and then of course your anchor fly can be a little bit heavier. Mm-hmm. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. So. Uh, what about, uh, you know, if we stick on the, uh, grayling for a little bit, I mean, are there any, uh, any resources, anything, you know, you want to throw out there kind of, uh, you know, books, magazines, videos, anything that you don't hear. I mean, I guess I don't hear a ton about grayling. I always think of Alaska, you know, mm-hmm. but obviously Europe, there must be some stuff out. Is there anything you know of that, you know, that might help somebody learn a, more, a little more about it? Yeah. When I first started, uh, I would go to, uh, I would get magazines actually like trout, um, from mm-hmm. England and, uh, they focus on grayling a lot there oh, and right. you'll read a lot of, a lot of grayling stories. That's, that's a, a fantastic resource. Oh, cool. Um, and then I went, you know, I did a lot of online, uh, searching for articles, uh, with the Europeans and of course you're going to be dealing with the language barrier yeah. and that type of stuff. Uh, but that just makes it a little more adventurous, I think, yeah. <laughs> trying to figure out the grayling stuff. Um, so yeah, I, I, I went to, uh, to the European resources for that and, um, you know, our Alaskan grayling, if you've spent time up there, you're like, okay, now it's I've caught a few of those. <laughs> yeah, it's not, yeah. it's not this, it's yeah. just, yeah, you can just go catch them. It's not a big deal. Yeah. Where are the rainbows? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, well, I, I, you know, definitely can't let you go before, uh, talking a little about spay, you know, uh, some of the rods and I was, you know, talking just, uh, today, uh, you know, one of the local fly shops, we were talking about echo kind of some of the stuff they have going what, what, you know, thinking about maybe, you know, just think about Echo. Can you tell us just briefly on that story? You, do you know the story how Tim got that thing started? And, and what was Spay? Was, was that kind of the start? How'd they start? What was their first rods they started with? Uh, I think their first rods were, uh, they did incorporate two-handed rods in, in with the traditional rods. Pretty early. Um, yeah. And remember, Tim was a rod designer oh, that's uh, right. for, Loom- oh, for Loomis. Oh, for Loomis. Yeah. That's and so right. he, uh, and his brother still is a Loomis rod uh, designer, I believe. Okay. Yep. Yeah. So of course, uh, and then he decided to go out on his own. Um, I'm not sure how long ago, but it wasn't, I mean, it was yeah, probably it 15 years or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Something like that. So, yeah. um, 
And uh, yeah, I mean, it's just an incredible story. I think he, one of his original goals was to make really durable rods that, uh, that people could use um, that were uh, a great value. Exactly. Yeah. And so like when you, when you talk about the spay, that's really taken off uh, for them. You know, he's got, yeah, he has designers like deck Hogan and and Mariusz and, um, and those guys just, you know, uh, amazing casters and, and anglers. Um, and when you get designers like that, then you're going to get unbelievable products. And then basically you have, uh, people kind of looking at different prices of rods and they're like, really, I can get a rod that performs like this. It's durable, um, for a lot less money than maybe other rods, premium rods. Uh, yeah, I don't, it's, it's a, it's a great story is what it is. Mm -hmm. And all the credit goes to Tim for, for having that concept. Yeah, so anything else you want to talk about just on the rod? I mean, we didn't go really too deep into the rod design. I mean, just to give people a feel for, you know, anything we're missing on, on the process uh, that might, might help somebody understand about, you know, when they're selecting their next rod. Uh, well, you know, uh, one of the things that I'm excited about right now is I've been uh, j- just finishing up uh, the Stillwater Rod Series oh, for, right. for Echo. And uh you know, I kind of designed those with an uh, with an eye toward lock style fishing, mm-hmm. and and uh, um, of course you do that type of stuff in the competitions. And uh, we just spent this last year uh, designing a series of of those Stillwater rods, and that was really really fun. Um, and those I think those are coming out here in the next month. So oh, cool. a whole a, a whole series of uh, they're actually called Echo Stillwater. Uh huh. Do Do you see? Yeah. Uh, and I mean, you could probably use that not only lock style, but for other, just, just all around lake fishing. Oh, of course. Yeah. Do you see more, uh, I'm not as in tune with the steel water game right now, but you know, is that lock style kind of getting increasing in popular, similar to the Euro nymphing stuff? Uh, not quite at the same pace, but I, I'll get requests to do lock style, um, clinics and stuff. And, uh, uh, still water fishing in general is definitely, uh, I think it's the next big thing in fly fishing. Um, mm-hmm. The rivers are very, very crowded right now. Um, once you get out on a lake, you kind of have that instant relief of, wow. So I, you know, I get this whole three square miles to myself. I can yeah. see maybe a couple boats on the other side over there, but I, you know, um, the, the impact on the, on the resource is less, you know, with, we got all those anglers out on rivers. So a lot of times that's tough on the fish. Um, and I, as I get older, I really truly enjoy sitting in a, in a boat sometimes and, and drifting with a, with a partner, you know, maybe having a few Coca-Colas and, and, uh, um, and it's sunny out and, yeah, and you know, nice. you're not, you're not wading up to your armpits and maybe getting washed down river. Um, I, I think that the still water fishing is, uh, is going to be the next big thing and in, in fly fishing because people are looking for places to get away from other people. Yep. Um, and lock style fishing is a really fun version of that. Uh, I was raised just kind of, kicking around in a belly boat sure. like dragging dragging woolly buggers around, around yep. you know canada and uh lock style fishing is is incredibly uh technical um most people who are into uh just still water fishing in general but especially lock style fishing they'll tell you that it's uh it's more technical than river fishing because of the fact that um it's hard to locate the fish and you have so many depths and uh basically basically you're playing this uh this kind of visual game with yourself inside your head, like, where am I? Where's my retrieve? Is there a fish following this? Right. Uh, whereas, you know, on a rivers, we kind of, it's like, I know that the fish is sitting right behind that rock. Yeah. Like I'm going to focus, I'm going to focus on them. Uh, with, with still water fishing, 
uh, you're just you're constantly searching for them, and they're moving around. And yeah. I just I I love that part of stillwater uh, fishing. Can you break down just really briefly? I know um, there, there's a little bit of lock style for me, but what lock style fishing is on a lake, and how how it's different from just uh, casting and stripping in flies. Sure. Like I said before, the the style of fishing that I grew up fishing was just kicking around with with flippers and dragging my my woolly bugger with my dad you know and the fishing was so good in canada that that's really all we needed to do um with lock style fishing you're you're in uh, oftentimes it's kind of a special style boat could be a clink style boat um uh, but i use my drift boat my clackercraft uh skiff and it's amazing for lock style fishing um but you have two anglers and the 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 boat is sideways drifting with the wind and so you're, you're like, let's say that I'm on the left side of the boat and you're on the right side of the boat. Um, that's my zone. Like mm-hmm. I, I, I don't come across like the oar line into gotcha. yours, uh, at least in the competitions. I mean, we, oh, we, wow. we could mess with, we can mess with each other while yeah, we're, yeah. you know, like, Hey, you missed that fish. I'm coming over the top <laughs> of your line. Um, but, uh, so you, it's, there's a lot of camaraderie with it as you're drifting. Um, and basically what you do is you figure out the, what we call them, uh, wind drifts. And like, uh, we have a really cool reservoir here called magic reservoir, um, up by sun Valley. And I love going there because the drifts are kind of, uh, uh, they're kind of consistent. So I'll, I'll motor up, let's say I've got a small motor on my drift boat. I'll motor up to the top of the lake and set up, um, sideways. And a lot of times we'll use what we call a drogue, um, which yeah. is kind of a sea anchor, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and we set up on that and we'll drift this one line that will end up all the way on the other side of the reservoir um, and it'll hit a certain point just about every time. And you'll go through pods of fish as you drift. And it's, it's really fun because it's new water all the time. You're like I said, you're with a partner and you're both casting downwind. Uh, the other thing about lock style fishing that I love is that it's all hero casting. Oh, is the it? Winds that, yeah. Well, the winds that you're oh, back. Nice. Yeah. So sometimes people will say like, what type of leader do you use for lock style? Like I use a, a 20 foot level leader of like, you know, two X to three X. This is straight leader. Like, well, you can't cast a 20 foot leaders. You can when the wind's at your back. Huh. Yeah. Yeah. So that's kind of cool. And, and basically what you're doing is you're just covering water and doing retrieves, um, as the boat moves in on your, on your, on your flies. Mm. Does that yep. make sense? Yep. Yep. So yeah. And then you're, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a really fun deal because you're, you're constantly on the move. Um, yeah. One of the things is you can't fish behind the boat. There's some rules too that dictate what lock style fishing is for all the competitions, but you know, you can't fish behind the boat. Uh, you can't anchor, um, and you're constantly moving. So there's a lot of challenges. What about the area? I mean, in depth, I mean, do do you have a certain, you know, are you trying to be more towards the the shore or are you out in the middle? How's that all that work? Totally depends on the lake. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, you, you end up knowing, uh, what the drifts are. You know, one of the cool things is I, I was in the world championships in Scotland and you go into this pub and on the wall, uh, like at Loch Leven, you know, this famous lock, um, uh-huh. they're, they have, they have drifts from, you know, the last couple hundred years that are famous. Huh. And, and sure enough, you're going to go park on that because the wind is kind of prevailing usually from the same direction. You're going to, you're going to set up on that and you're going to do that same drift that they've got on a poster on the wall. It's wow. just so cool. Oh, cool. Um, yeah. And then, and of course, you know, the local knowledge there is, is so great that they can tell you like, okay, there's going to be a dip coming up right past that island. The yeah. brown trout hang out, hang out in that. Um, and so there's, you know, there's a lot of technical stuff. Yeah. Um, 
and it, you know, that's just one of the things that I really uh, appreciate about lock style fishing. And I, I think that it'll, uh, it might catch on a little bit more in the U S. Sure. Um, I know in North America, uh, you know, when I'm up in Canada with, uh, like Phil, I don't, did you say you had Phil Rolly yeah, on? Yeah, yeah, he was on. Yeah, he covered all the, uh, the indicator stuff and everything he does. Yeah, like Phil and Brian Chan up there when we, when we fish together, I go, I go up every year and fish oh, cool. up there. Um, uh, we'll double anchor, which I love. I love that as well. Uh-huh. You know, double, yeah, I'm sure Phil covered a lot of that stuff. Um, but you know, double anchoring with indicators and, and, uh, um, you know, it's just one of those things. Still water has all these, uh, aspects to it. Uh, but lock style fishing is something that, that a lot of people haven't tried and, uh, it's very challenging and, and, uh, just the fact that you're covering all that water is really fun. Yeah. I was just trying to track down. We talked about a couple of notes on here. Um, Lance Egan was episode 108 and Phil was way back somewhere in the thirties, I think. But, um, yeah, we've had a little bit and we had, I uh, had another guest on here that, uh, Denny Rickards, and we were talking about, you know, trout feeding and coming into shore, you know, on the lakes, on the still waters and catching them there. But yeah, so it, there's, uh, I think still water is definitely, I think you're right. I mean, I, I love the, um, getting out there in the lakes and I think it probably will increase cause it is a lot of times, yeah, more, it seems like it's more remote than, than those rivers for sure. I think when I guide, I guide a lot of people on still waters. I've converted a lot of, uh, river anglers to still waters. Oh, nice. Um, they tend to, they're kind of blown away. Like they think they're going to maybe like troll or, or, you know, do something really kind of rudimentary and it's not a lot of thinking when they see how technical everything is. And obviously the, the fish size is great, right? The fish are big. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and then they just, they realize that it's, it's kind of an adventure on the lake, uh, scouting all these spots and, and having all these different plans and strategies. Um, they really love it. They really love it. So I would, yep. I would strongly encourage your listeners to, to give Stillwater angling a try. Even if you are just a dyed in the wool, uh, stream angler, uh, you can really, really have a lot of fun on lakes. Yeah. 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 And I think I might be setting up a trip maybe next year for, uh, we got the Cascade Lakes out here. I've got a, a somebody I'm talking to. We might have a trip set up, so I'll, I'll throw that out there maybe for uh, down the line. So okay, and uh, yeah, you and you noted I think Loon earlier Airflow. Do you want to note any other? Those are the main companies you kind of yeah. I've been with? I've been a Clackacraft Pro staffer oh, yeah. since the the very beginning, and I've been in a Clackacraft for you know 20 plus years now. Yeah, love 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 the boat. Yeah, um, yeah, you know just kind of one of those guys in the industry yeah um yeah uh you should try the the echo stillwater when you do get a chance to go out there it's a they're great rods you know they're 10 foot 10 foot fives 10 foot sixes and Mm -hmm. 10 foot sevens okay Um, there's even a 10 and a half uh foot six that for uh indicator fishing and stuff which is kind of a cool uh new concept of a rod so what's your uh so on that boat on the uh is is a drift boat the best for lock style fishing is that is that the best type of boat or is there another one that works no really the best boats are are sometimes the the handmade boats in europe you know like in scotland we were in lock leaven we were in these boats that were that were giant super heavy boats that didn't crab you know you know crabbing is going back and forth oh right Uh, Yeah, crabbing is suddenly the guy in the front is 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 yeah. rocking forward, and then the guy in the back. Um, uh, boats will tend to crab, so not every boat is going to work for lock style fishing um, uh, out here, like especially John boats and things like that. Uh, but I know that I've done a lot of lock style fishing out of different types of drift boats and stuff. And um, if you don't have a super high bow that gets blown in the wind, 
uh, like my skiff. I've got a, you know, uh, a a headhunter, headhunter skiff and, uh, it's great for that. So drift boats do do a good job and, uh, prams do a good job. And, um, you basically just have to experiment a little bit with it. Okay. Okay, cool. Yeah. All right. So, uh, yeah, before I get out of here, I got a couple of little, uh, little rapid fire questions for you here. Um, Sure. Um, one of them, uh, the first random rapid fire is, uh, on, are you more of a, you know, if you had to choose on the audio stuff, more podcasting or music when you sit down, maybe at the tying table or or just hanging out? Uh, I probably, uh, mixture of both, probably music. Okay. I would say. Yeah. Yeah. And any, any, uh, band or type of music you want to throw out as your go-to? Uh, I'm, you know, I'm. I was just a massive classic rock type type person from the era that I grew up with. But, um, uh, as far as bands go, yeah. you know, I, I, I kind of like, uh, I kind of like some of the more modern stuff. This is going to seem kind of weird, but like, you know, like Thievery Corporation and, uh-huh. and, uh, kind of, kind of groovy, uh, tech techno stuff. I kind of okay. like, which is probably pretty strange if, yeah. if no. you're on a flat tying table. <laughs> no, what's the, uh, the, if you, what comes to mind first when you think classic rock, what, what band? Uh, oh, I'm, I'm kind of like your, your average boring, uh, Beatles, Rolling Stones, oh, yeah. uh, Doors. Yeah. That, that's, oh, yeah. that's the stuff that I listen to a uh, lot. And yep. Yeah. I, I'm way into that stuff. Oh, or yeah. Still always have been since I was, you know, you know, 10 years old. Gotcha. Okay. Um, and I've got, do you have, can you think of a, a story? Can you give us a, uh, a story from your life? It might be fly fishing, Something, uh, something kind of crazy, anything you think of, and you can either choose something that is, uh, either a true story or a completely made up story and you don't have to tell <laughs> us and we're going to, we're going to decide, uh, decide for you. Could, could you come up with something for us? Anything come to mind? Uh, yeah, I think that, I, I mean, I've obviously got several weird fly fishing stories, and, especially guide, and guiding. Pete, and Pete, don't tell us if it's true or false. I'm going to let people, uh, we'll see if we can vote with the, uh, with the hashtag liars den. So we're, we're going to see if this is going to work, work for us. So, so yeah, go for it. Go, go ahead with the story. Uh, oh, let me think here. Um, see if I'm making it up or not. Um, <laughs> uh, so, okay. So, uh, there was a, there was a June where, uh, where some buddies, uh, of mine and I, we, uh, we flew into uh, the Connectock River, like Pagati up there, and uh, we were uh, we were putting um, rafts together. We flew in about ten thirty at night, and uh, it was you know the sun was out and it was just it was just beautiful. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, one of the one of the deals that we have to do is pump up uh, the rafts. We we're gonna we were gonna float the the Connectock. And we got to pump up the rafts. That takes a long time. And and uh, some of the guys, uh, while they were getting all the stuff out and everything, decided to kind of hang out on the rafts and grab a beer. And um, I had actually uh, been to the area before, and uh, I knew that there were some creeks that kind of run into the top of this uh, of the Connectock River up there. And so I decided to grab my uh, my dry fly rod and and uh, you know put on a parachute atoms which you know if you've spent enough time in alaska you realize you could totally do that in the small uh, mm-hmm. creeks that come into the rivers um and so i decide uh to start walking down river i'm like hey guys i'm gonna go see if i can find a couple trout in, in these creeks down here uh, and they're like great yeah uh, come back when you're you know when you're ready we'll have all, all of the stuff packed up or maybe we'll just come down and meet you mm-hmm. 
Um, and you know, we're at the top, so it's probably shin deep water. I would say uh, a bunch of sockeye kind of running in between my legs and everything. <laughs> and, uh, um, so I'm walking down and I'm, I'm heading toward this one little corner and I'm, I'm out of sight of the boats now. And I, uh, I hear this like kind of wood breaking sound, like branches breaking. And, uh, I look across the river and it's pretty wide up at the top. It's probably a football field wide, maybe, maybe even more than that at the top of the connect talk. And, uh, next thing I see is, uh, um, a bunch of branches floating in the water and they're heading down the river. And I'm like, Oh, I wonder if a tree fell in, oh, yeah. but then, uh, you know, it's a bush. So there's no giant trees up there. And I'm like, huh, what is, what is going on here? And the next thing I'm, I'm trying to process this from across there, I see this white ball of water. Like it's, it's splashing water huh. and I'm going, what is going on? What is this? Um, and as I'm standing there watching this, I, I see this, uh, I see something brown inside the white ball of water and it's coming toward me really fast. And then, uh, I'm, you know, a second or two later after the the brain fart of what's happening right now, I'm like, Oh, that's a giant brown bear. And he's coming toward me at full speed right now. And just plowing through uh, the water. Just unbelievable uh, coming through. And I, uh, I'd been around brown bears before throwing rocks at them, cleared them out of fishing sites and stuff like that. Yeah. And there was some about this one that I was like, that one's going to maul me. Like I just, I, I have a feeling this is going to maul me right here. I just, I, and I did everything wrong. I dropped my rod and started running. Oh man. <laughs> like I, I literally started screaming at the top of my lungs bear and trying to make it back to the boats. Because I, I know instinctively if you get back to a group of people, uh, you know, a bear usually won't attack you. Yeah. Um, and I'm, I'm running as fast as I can. <laughs> My waders, which is, must have looked crazy. Um, the bear's catching me so fast, reeling me in so fast. Um, and I finally get to around the corner uh, of where the, where the rafts are. And they've got the rafts set up and they're, you know, they're just kicking back, having a cocktail. <laughs> no way. And, uh, I, I'm like, bear, bear, oh my God. You know, I probably said a few uh, swear yeah. words too. Um, and I get to the front of the boat and uh, we actually had, you know, we had a Mossberg uh, oh, shotgun yeah. yep. sitting on there sure. on the boat. And uh, um, I turn around and this bear comes around the corner and he's only now 15 feet behind me. Damn. Like he's come, he's come that close to me. And the bear stops because it sees the two boats with, with the uh, multiple people. Um, and I, shot a warning shot up in the air Wow! and the bear got up on its hind legs and, and started just go, like going crazy. Huh. Um, and then it started racing back and forth and, uh, there, we had buckshot in the, in the, the first, you know, shells in the gun. And then, uh, um, I shot the water in front. I know better than to hit oh, a bear yeah. with a, you know, <laughs> oh, you don't that's, shoot the, that's the last thing you want to do is, yeah. is shoot a bear. Don't shoot um, you just want to try to scare them off. And, yeah. and, uh, this thing just did not want to give up on me. It's just like wanted, wanted to eat me, I swear. Huh. Um, and so I shot the water in front of him. He raced back and forth about four or five more times, just super, super pissed off. Um, and then raced into the brush and disappeared. And it was just dead silence. We all oh, looked at each other. That was yeah, it. And it was like, okay, I'm- what just happened? <laughs> <laughs> and everybody was sitting there with their beers just watching this whole thing. Yeah, yeah. And I was like, you guys need to pour me a drink right now. Damn. 
that, that would be uh that yeah how's that, for, how's that for a story that's pretty good i'll uh so yeah see how this works so we'll go uh we'll try a little uh, hashtag liars den uh l-i-a-r-s-d-e-n we'll see if that works and i'll, I'll have you come back uh back down i'll check back with you uh, you know in a few months or whenever we get this released and we'll see see what people think if that's a true or a uh, true story or false story from from the bear we've had some bear uh encounter stories on this and uh have you really <laughs> oh yeah i can't think of uh, there's been a few i can't remember the last one it's been a little while but um so no that that's good i was gonna also check in with you just on your bucket list you know i know you've we didn't get into any of your travel stuff you've been all around do you have one place left that you, you really want to get to next um yeah i i you know believe it or not i haven't been to new zealand and oh, uh you know yeah. guys like jack dennis and and jeff courier just tell me like it's just are you kidding you haven't been there i mean yeah. I've, I've fished i've been to dubai and africa and you know i fished all over the yeah. place um and i for some reason haven't had a chance to go there so that's that would be my bucket list cool is definitely to go go fish there right on right on all right well i'll let you get out here just in the next uh, six to 12 months anything new um i guess you mentioned there's a the rod the still water rod anything else you want to note coming up with you or the the companies you work with uh no the still water rod is my main focus right now um and making sure that that we get out and promote that and uh also the shadow x is is relatively new on the market and uh, i want to travel around and uh, make it to as many fly shops as possible and and do you know some demos and and clinics and stuff for folks so that that's probably my my biggest focus right now perfect all right oh yeah hopefully i'll catch up with you here down the line i'm gonna be uh I'm definitely going to be promoting, helping get the word out on Echo, and not not that they need much help, but I'm looking for you know trying to get people that contact me and you know they want a, a good rod and trying to connect them. So yeah, I appreciate you shedding some light on on everything in the process, and yeah, we'll just keep in touch with you as, as everything moves forward here. Awesome. All right, awesome. Pete. Hey, thanks, thanks a lot. A lot we'll talk Dave. to you soon. See ya. So there you go. If you want to find all the show notes, all the links we covered, just go to wetflyswing.com/slash one one eight. A couple of quick notes before we head out of here today. If you haven't seen the resources page, you can head over to wetflyswing.com slash resources to see all the products recommended by guests of this podcast and some of our top picks. I want to also remind you uh, this upcoming steelhead uh, season. We've got a summer steelhead trip if you want to check it out. Go to wetflyswing.com slash swing the fly for more info. Thanks again for stopping by and check out the show today. Look forward to catching up this soon. I hope to maybe see you online or on the river. Thanks for listening to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show. For notes and links from this episode, visit wetflyswing.com. And if you found this episode helpful, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes.